Welcome to another episode of Truth Matters, where together with Mackenzie Drebbit and Walter Fight, we uncover and expose a lot of the inner workings of what's going on around the world. In our last episode, for those who joined us, we talked about the explosive topic of the Great Reset and started to peel back the layers looking at several of the world leaders and what the common language was and the theme was between these individuals and the organizations they represent. We talked about the World Economic Forum and the United Nations, as well as the International Monetary Fund and an organization inside of the United Nations, which we just saw, World Goodwill. Now, we left off at a pretty explosive place last time where uh, Walter introduced us to the concept of this Luciferian worship inside of the UN. And we don't want people to take our word for it. We actually asked you, the viewer, last time to go on to the World Goodwill website, which is luciustrust.org, and find this link called Service and the Divine Plan. Now, before we get into that, Mackenzie, Walter, welcome back to another episode. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, we're kind of walking a little bit and treading in some um, interesting territory for probably a lot of people who are new to this information. But let's kind of rehash for them what what we got into in terms of the spiritual nature of the United Nations. Uh, Walter, can you walk us through kind of the spiritual mindset of the United Nations and some of the spiritual components that you had seen in your in your research of this organization? Well, as we saw in the last episode, from its very inception, the United Nations had this deep spiritual uh, component. And from the very first Secretary General, all the way through, there has been a very continuous line of thinking in terms of the spirituality. And it definitely is not a Christian line of thinking. If you look at the symbolism that comes out of the United Nations, if you look at the the prayer room that comes out of the the United Nations, even those people that were supposedly of a secular-only nature had deep spiritual roots in these secret relationships and secret societies. So the worship of this entity called Lucifer, changed to Lucifer's trust later, is a thread that runs through the United Nations. Now, many, many years ago, I gave a lecture on the United Nations and the spiritual aspect of the United Nations. But that is not something that is just steeped in history. That is something that is alive and well and coming out in the buzzwords that are now emanating from the United Nations. We cannot leave this thread untouched. And if you go to uh, the organizations like Goodwill and Temple of Understanding, all of them have a very common theme, and they're based on spiritualism and not on Scripture. Yeah, and I'd like people to go watch Walter's previous lecture. It's called The UN Occult Agenda. If you haven't seen it, or his other videos from Total Onslaught, a series that has uh, changed many, many lives. But I want to go back to where we left off. 
We asked people to go to this World Goodwill website. We talked a little bit about Alice A. Bailey, but I want to continue where we left off there and go in a little bit deeper because this is, as Walter said, uh, an issue that's happening right now. This site tells us, luciustrust.org, tells us exactly what their goal is inside of the UN. And we see a couple of different issues we'll put up on the screen here that are brought up on this website. One of them involves the spiritual hierarchy, which uh, Walter mentioned a little bit, as well as things called the world religion in a new era, the reappearance of the Christ, and the coming one. Now, I want to focus a little bit on these last two, because what is a, a political organization like the UN doing with a group inside of it that is sanctioned by the UN itself as a non-governmental organization doing to educate the world for a new age which involves a world religion, a spiritual hierarchy, and what the real point here that I want to focus on is, is this reappearance or this coming Christ. Now, there will be a lot of people that hear that and say, well, that must be Jesus Christ. But Walter, in your research in the occult and your history of, of, of discovery in this topic, when they use the same name, do they always mean um, referring to the same figure? Absolutely not. There is a difference between Jesus Christ in their thinking and the Christ. In their spiritual thinking, Jesus Christ was actually overshadowed by the Christ. So it wasn't really Jesus Christ who was doing anything on this world or on this, in his forum in the time that he came to this earth. It was the Christ who overshadowed him, a higher entity. So Jesus was basically uh, a puppet in the hands of a greater puppet master. In the same sense, out of this you have the New Age movement, which says that everybody is basically a Christ and is subject to this power, which they tend to call the hierarchy, which is a group of individuals that have achieved this high status. Now they are expecting, according to Alice A. Bailey, the manifestation of this hierarchy amongst humanity. And she wrote a book called The Externalization of the Hierarchy, which is just a fancy name of saying that they will manifest themselves. Now, even the Bible says that Satan will masquerade as an angel of light and therefore it creates the idea that he will manifest himself as the Christ. And he will manifest himself in various places and in various societies, which is again contrary to Scripture because the Scriptures say that when Christ manifests, Every eye will see him. It will be a simultaneous event and not a local event. In fact, Jesus warned against just such occurrences by saying when they say he is in the desert or when they say he is in the inner room, don't believe it. Don't go there. It's a, it's a false Christ. So what the United Nations is actually doing here is propagating a worldview which directly fulfills 
scripture and contradicts the real appearance of Jesus Christ. They are on the side of the Luciferian issue and not on the side of the biblical issue. And we can actually see in our previous episodes where we talked about secret societies and how they influence the global affairs. Alice Bailey is actually a very prominent figure in Freemasonry. If you go to universalfreemasonry.org, you can actually see a list of famous Freemasons where they have biographies of these Freemasons. And she's one of the few women uh, in the past, especially when we go back a number of, of decades and centuries, that she founded several organizations like Lucifer Publishing, known as Lucius Trust, where they had the idea of a great world religion that would unite all faiths. Now, there could be some people sitting out there saying, well, it's just one person. Okay, so there's a, a some loose connection with the United Nations now. But when we look at another person inside the United Nations, a guy named Robert Mueller, he was in charge of creating something called the World Core Curriculum, which, if correct me if I'm wrong, Walter, was the, the basis for a world education and this was, he was a very, very prominent figure in the United Nations. And he actually based all of this world curriculum, which was meant to go to everyone, the standard by which the education system for this new world system would be used, was this world core curriculum, which he openly admitted was based on the teachings of Alice A. Bailey. Can you tell us a little bit about Mueller's involvement with the UN and his involvement with creating this curriculum that's based on these principles of a, uh, a well-known Luciferian worshiper in Alice A. Bailey? Well, Miller was basically the Holy Grail. He was uh, the hub of the United Nations. He was the one, as you say, who introduced the World Core Curriculum. Uh, that World Core Curriculum, based on Alice A. Bailey, pushes the, the Luciferian agenda. And therefore, it has to get rid of the teaching of the Scripture which you had in many, many institutions that were still uh, rooted to a Protestant base. So now I find it very fascinating that the papacy, Pope Francis, calls for a new education. And the new education is nothing other than the World Core curriculum divested of its Protestant influence. And that is why recently Macron, who is also a a friend of Pope Francis, made it quite clear that uh, religion and uh, the study of Scripture will be removed from the curriculum in its entirety. He said that uh, there will be only a, a form of secular education. But there's no such thing. Once you remove truth, what you open the door to is error. And if you remove one form of spirituality, it will simultaneously be replaced by another spirituality. So this is the old Jesuit learning against learning, which was implemented in order to destroy the influence of Protestantism, which is being brought in at, in a universal scale. Well, it's an amazing history, but it doesn't end just in history. We actually have common connections with common people today 
to this organization inside the UN, the UN itself, and Lucius Trust. McKinsey, give us a little insight about what we can see with the very prominent figure during this whole public health crisis, Bill Gates and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as it relates to some of these organizations that we've highlighted here. Now, this is very interesting because we've seen Bill Gates a lot in the news, and he's pushing, of course, uh, a vaccine, and he's talked about this many times. Uh, We won't show it here, but you can look up. uh, He's done several TED Talks on a pandemic that he thinks is going to happen or in the future, which is very interesting. He did one uh, at least five years ago. Some he did even earlier than that. Um, He's got a lot of very interesting views on uh, overpopulation, which we're going to get into a little bit later as well. Um, One thing that's interesting is his connection to the United Nations. He had a cooperation agreement that he did back in 2004 already with Microsoft and the United Nations, which is extremely interesting. But not only that, uh, we can show you here, there's an image. You can't find this anymore. They removed it from the website. But there's a sub-organization of Lucis Trust, and that sub-organization is called the New Group of World Servers. And one of the financial backers is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So we see he's connected directly to the United Nations, but also he's connected to Lucis Trust, which is extremely interesting. And what role do you think, because I actually did some research on Bill and Melinda during this whole thing, because, you know, I'm kind of attuned to look for these connections now that we know and we're, we're letting our viewers and our listeners know where the top, how this hierarchy works and who sits at the top. I always look for that connection. How do I find the Jesuits? How do I find the papacy? And we find that Bill Gates, although he doesn't talk about it much, and Melinda are very uh, devout Roman Catholics. Melinda herself actually uh, considers herself to be a expert on Roman Catholic doctrine, including the social doctrine of common good and a number of other very impactful social doctrines. And when you have people like this with this kind of wealth and we see that their relationship with their faith in this instance brings out a lot of um, social activity, social justice. Uh, how do we see that the, 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 the status as a billionaire and the ability to make moves across the world and work with organizations like the UN and make connections with the World Health Organization and we see their relationships with, with Lucius Trust how do how do the power players that the billionaires of the world, people like Bill and Melinda Gates, Walter, uh, affect how these plans from the papacy and from the UN roll out on a practical scale? Now you have a number of billionaires in the world today. Not only the Gateses, but uh, there are others. Donald Trump is one of them, and uh, you have Soros. He's another. And all of these billionaires are all involved at this United Nations level. And they're all in this great reset. Now, uh, the ability to become rich 
in terms of the magnitude in which these people are called rich is not something that happens to everyone. And uh, it's fascinating that they all have the connections. So in other words, they're supposed to be where they're supposed to be because they act as front organizations. The world is on the brink of a great scientific achievement. A COVID-19 vaccine will likely be ready by early next year. In fact, we'll probably have more than one vaccine ready. These vaccines will allow us to save millions of lives. They'll also have another enormous benefit. They'll allow us to develop a plan for the world to globally eliminate COVID-19. To achieve this goal of global elimination, we need three things. The capacity to produce billions of vaccines, the funding to pay for them, and the systems to deliver them everywhere. A vaccine can make COVID-19 a preventable disease, and no one should die of a preventable disease simply because the country they live in can't afford the vaccine. But you don't even have to care about the equity view to see the problem with the rich country only scenario. The only way to eliminate the threat of this disease somewhere is to eliminate it everywhere. The solution is not shaming the rich countries that are doing the natural thing of wanting to protect their people. The solution is to vastly increase the manufacturing capacity so we can cover everyone as soon as possible. It's been amazing to see these private companies agreeing to expand drug making capacity by using each other's factories. We have a number of agreements like this, but we need even more, especially for the vaccine. That's why I'm thrilled today to announce a new joint agreement signed this morning by 16 pharmaceutical companies and the Gates Foundation. In this agreement, the companies commit to, among other things, scaling up manufacturing at an unprecedented speed and making sure that approved vaccines reach broad distribution as early as possible. They're not really individuals who are just interested in philanthropy and human well-being. These people are connected at the highest level through the societies that they belong to, and the wealth that they apparently have in their hands is not their wealth at all, in my humble opinion. This is wealth that is placed into the hands of these individuals so that they can act as front organizations and take the heat. Now, if you take Bill Gates, is he taking a lot of heat from the anti-vaxxers? Is he taking a lot of heat from a Protestant doctrine about the mark of the beast which in actual fact is not a Protestant doctrine at all, but a Jesuit doctrine implanted in Protestantism. And he is like a lightning rod taking this heat when behind the scenes the puppet master is really running the show and is introducing a false doctrine of a false antichrist, a false mark of the beast, attaching it to an individual who is super rich, making the divide between the rich and the poor even more prominent, 
and then displaying them as a philanthropist, as someone who wants to benefit mankind, when in actual fact, the data shows that there is a totally different agenda. So these billionaires are not powers in their own right. These billionaires that now fund the United Nations because rogue nations like the United States under, under Donald Trump have withdrawn their supposed funding of the United Nations, and these people are standing in the gap. This is part of the plan. This is a lightning rod strategy to take the issue and the heat of the real puppet masters behind the scenes. And you have rightly said that they all have these connections to Rome because they all sit in forums at Rome discussing these issues. And that cannot happen by chance. And we see that even in uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, if you look at their website, uh, their chief executive officer, Mark Suzman. I'll just read right off their website. It says, Mark joined the United Nations when he was part of the effort to implement the Millennium Development Goals under the leadership of then-Secretary General Kofi Annan. He held multiple positions at the UN over his six-year tenure, including Senior Advisor for Policy and Strategic Communications in the Office of the Secretary General and Policy Director in the Office of the Administrator of the United Nations Development Program. So even the people in their foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, are from the United Nations. So the, the ties are, I mean, easy to find. We're not uh, speculating. We're not offering conjecture. We're trying to f give others a real traceable line of information where they can understand how these components fit together. But there's a component that we haven't really brought to the surface yet that I'd like to do now because we've, we've looked at the spiritual component. We've looked at the financial component. We've looked at the political or, or civil component. But there's a group that there may not be a lot of awareness about that I'd like to draw some attention to that really locks down the social components of this whole thing. And this is an organization called the Club of Rome. And, you know, there's a an interesting thing behind something known as, as think tanks. You've got them all over the world. And this is one of the oldest and most ingrained and most uh, prestigious. Mackenzie, give us a little insight on the Club of Rome as it uh, relates to some of the stuff that we're talking about here. So the Club of Rome is a very interesting group of people. Um, if we read straight from the website, you can just look this uh, on their website on the About section. It has many uh, former heads of state, prestigious scientists, uh, it's a very big organization. It was started in Rome. That's why it's called the Club of Rome. Um, and basically, they're a think tank for uh, sort of the social outcome and social aspects of the world. So you have, for an example, you have the Bilderberg Group, which is the financial guys. Then you have the Club of Rome, which is the social society aspect, sort of same aspect of that. Um, there's some very, very interesting quotes 
in a book that we actually have right here. So we have a copy of this book. It's called 2052. So we actually have it, so we're referencing it. Uh, there's a lot of very, very scary but interesting information in this book. This is um, not their first work. Their first work was known as Limits to Growth. And I'd actually like to play, before we read some quotes from them, I'd like to play a video referring to this group and their first uh, basically research paper called Limits to Growth. Once upon a time, there was a man who invented chess. The king was so pleased, he offered the man a reward. The man, who was very wise, told the king that he would only want one grain of wheat for the first square of the chessboard, two for the second, four for the third, and so on, doubling the amount for each square of the chessboard. The king said yes, and at the end of the game he had to abdicate, because he had no more grains of wheat to pay his debt. That is the nature of exponential growth, and our chessboard is planet Earth. Forty years ago, a report by a team of scientists from the MIT shook the world. They designed and ran the first global computer model ever, suggesting humanity should adapt to the physical limitations of planet Earth in order to avoid overshoot and collapse. During the last year, a group of us at MIT have been looking at the exponential growth of our global social and economic system. We've been led to five basic conclusions. There are physical limits to growth, which, given current trends, are very likely to be encountered even during the lifetime of our children. This growth is going to stop. It must stop, and it will stop. Second, the most likely outcome of running into these limits, if we continue to... I just want to stop it there because it's very interesting. We're seeing a trend from all these different people saying, we have this goal, and when we succeed, and we will, there's, they, they always say they're not going to have failure. Failure is not an option. They're going to succeed. And they said here... The growth must stop and it will stop. likely outcome of running into these limits, if we continue to ignore them, is that we'll overshoot those limits and collapse. I think that many people have found a new way of making fools of themselves in not recognizing that there are limits to human expansion. We appear to have a viable alternative to this outcome one in which population and material production could be brought into balance with a finite environment and with our resources. We have learned that more is not necessarily better. But even our great nation has its recognized limits. Fourth conclusion is that it's realistically going to take 50, 100 years or more to reach that alternative in an orderly fashion. We believe then and now there are no limits to growth and human progress when men and women are free to follow their dreams. And finally, every year we delay decreases our ultimate options. Their report was published in a book entitled The Limits to Growth, 
which turned out to be the most controversial environmentalist bestseller of all time. There can be no doubt what one subject has aroused most controversy among scientists during the past 12 months. I mean, of course, the prospect of doom for mankind because of pollution, overpopulation, overuse of resources. Well, I think that, this, that the conclusions of this study are completely wrong. If you check uh, what happens if you vary all your assumptions together, then uh, I understand from the uh, Science Policy Research Unit at Sussex, who have actually been checking your model, the catastrophe disappears altogether. That's interesting. I spent all last Friday down with the Science Policy Research Institute, and they didn't, uh, they didn't indicate that. <laughs> well, um, you know, this is developing debate who spoke to them last. I spoke to them this morning. <laughs> After having spent 40 years fighting for their message, the authors gathered where the Limits to Growth saga began. Which options do they think we have today? Forty years ago, it was still theoretically possible to slow things down and come to an equilibrium. Now that's no longer possible. We are coming into a period of uncontrolled decline. We need now to start focusing specifically on the issue of resilience. If we go through this period of decline without foreknowledge, without preparation, I fear that it will strip away many of our fundamental values. The need is for early and strong action to avoid the problems that are already here and that will get worse in the future. The horrible fact is that democracy and capitalism will not solve those problems. We do need a fundamental paradigm shift in the area of governance. So it's the national and international governance uh, thing, which is what one ought to be debating when one is looking ahead. Personally, I'm an optimist. Personally, I believe in the brilliance of human beings. Um, the past 40 years makes you doubt it a little, but uh, I do believe humans are brilliant. I don't consider myself any better than any other human being, but I have lived for 20 years with these global models. And I can see, I, I, I instinctively understand the global results of personal actions that I take. And I know what kind of world I want to live in. I don't want to live in a collapsing world. I don't want to live in a world, as Jürgen says, it's getting grayer and grayer. And it costs more and more and more to maintain even a decent standard of living. I want to live in a sustainable world where there is no poverty, no hunger, and no erosion of the Earth's resources. According to the Limits to Growth authors, the environmental and economic crisis we are going through are part of the same global crisis. They don't hold the truth, and they have different... So this clip was from uh, a documentary called Last Call, uh, basically promoting the Club of Rome and sort of this Limits to Growth idea. Now... If you notice, there was a person, uh, Jürgen Randers, who was commenting, and he said that capitalism cannot fix this. So we see their attack on capitalism again, and that's the person who um, wrote this book, 2052, which it's a forecast for the next 40 years up until the year 2052. So if we read a couple quotes from the Club of Rome, and this is from the Club of Rome's website, our goal 
is to actively advocate for paradigm and systems shifts, which will enable society to emerge from our current crisis by promoting a new way of being human within a more resilient biosphere. Recently, the Club of Rome has prioritized five key areas of impact, climate, planetary emergency, reclaiming and reframing economics, rethinking finance, emerging new civilizations, and youth leadership. Now, some of the quotes from this very interesting book, 2052. It will be difficult to correct this market failure, namely to organize a decline in senior executive pay. This will require a collective behavior from a group who is not used to organizing, namely owners. So basically his point here is that executive pay, which is higher than uh, the employee's pay, needs to come back down and be level with everybody else, which obviously is going to discourage people from being owners of business because they'll have more responsibility, but they're not going to get any benefits. Uh, Another... uh, Apart from page 169, I would be very surprised if this tension is not relieved through some form of forced redistribution. So now here we're getting into this concept of redistribution of wealth. So one question that is posed in the book, uh, this is on page 239, and it says, Will I be poorer in this new system? And his answer is, some of us will, others will not. In order to give a clear answer, the question must be asked more precisely. The question must be, will I be poor compared to X? And you must decide whether X should be A today, B what you would have been if humanity rose to the occasion and ran a rational world, or C relative to your peers. Yours is the wrong question. You should not ask, will I be poorer? You should rather ask, will I be more satisfied? Whether you are satisfied with life is more important for you than whether you are somewhat richer or poorer. It is the sum total of all aspects of life that determine your well-being both now and in the future. So when you privately assess the implications for yourself of my global forecast, try to judge what it will mean for your well-being, not only what it will mean for your income. So, Walter, what are some thoughts that you have on those statements there? They are absolutely in line with what the World Economic Forum has said, that one of its objectives is nobody owns anything. Everybody is on the same page in terms of income. In other words, one universal income for all that eradicates the poverty of the poor and gets rid of the wealth of the rich. That's one of the aims that they have. Uh, They're not only interested, as you see, in a redistribution of wealth. They are interested in the environment. And if you do a little bit of research on the environmental issue you will see that even Greta Thunberg, 
who is part of the youth strategy that they're mentioning there, through her parents, has links to the Club of Rome. So all of these are integrated. And as we have seen, there has been a lot of handshaking between Greta Thunberg and Pope Francis. So again, we have all of these interesting connections. So this is just part of the great plan, and uh, they will implement it. They are using the typical J-curve strategy that you find in ecology, where you have, uh, let's say, a very productive class, which then leads to exponential growth, which eventually leads to a massive crash. And then you have cycles of massive growth and massive crash, which is called the J-curve. And they are applying the J-curve to humanity and saying that this is what is happening to humanity, whereas you need equilibrium. And the only way to introduce equilibrium is, number one, to control reproduction, and number two, to make sure that the resources are not being outstripped. So that is what they call in their buzzword, sustainable development. And then you will be on this constant curve. You won't own anything. You won't over-exploit. You won't under-exploit. The graph cannot have spikes and, and drops. You'll stay at the same level. And that's basically how the Middle Ages ran. Now, the question they have to ask themselves, if you do that, what happens to human initiative? What happens to human incentive? Basically, it's in the trash can. And we have to ask ourselves whether the capacity of humanity was designed for constancy or was it designed for eternal growth. If you, if you answer that question you will find that there's a very deep philosophical aspect, no, even a religious aspect to this question. Who wants to have a status quo of constant staying in very well-defined parameters, in other words, a form of slavery, where you are just a cog in sustaining the environment and the spiritual realm of the world, or one in which you can excel and reach your human potential. That's what you have to decide. Which side of this, of this debate do you want to be on? Mm-hmm. And I'll read one more quote, actually, from the book here, which is very interesting because uh, in the previous quote, he says, you should be uh, interested in whether you will be satisfied now, to you and me, that may be slightly different than what they're implying. So, let's see what they say here on page 332. It, this is a point on what should we do. He says, do not teach your children to love the wilderness. So, when you see your children sitting in front of the computer and think that they should rather be by the campfire in the great outdoors you should constrain your temptation to interfere by teaching your children to love the loneliness of the untouched wilderness. You are teaching her 
It's very interesting that they always use the term her when referring to your children to love that will be increasingly difficult to find and you will be increasing the chance of her being unhappy. So how do we be satisfied? Well, by not teaching our children to love what we would not have them to. Now, further down on that same section in the book, it says, Such transfer of values is beneficial in the sense that it teaches the children to enjoy the environment in which they live but only if society evolves gradually. If society or its surroundings change too fast, the advice of the elderly becomes irrelevant, and in unlucky circumstances, the careful inoculation of past values may be incurable unhappiness. So at the bottom of the page, it says, much better than to rear a new generation that will find peace, calm and satisfaction in the bustling life of a mega city and with never-ending music piped into their ears. That doesn't sound peaceful at all, being in a, in a bustling city with music constantly piped into your ears. But I think what we see is that there's, there's this use of getting these ideologies infused into cultures. This concept of, of think tanks like the Club of Rome, the Brookings Institute, the Royal Society. These are organizations that, you know, I'd like to get your guys' opinion. Is, is, the, is the purpose of these think tanks to start to come up with academic ways of infusing these ideologies into the culture? Because while we're talking about the Great Reset and what is happening today and kind of the pieces that are connected to that, we get that they're going after some very fundamental rights that places like the United States were founded on. Individual rights, individual liberties, the right to own property being one of those. And you can actually find in the documents of Catholic social teaching all the way back to the 15th, 16th century, the concept that the right to own individual property is only as good as it is subject to the common good. So you have these ideologies that stem from philosophies and doctrine that come from several hundred years ago that find their way into these think tanks and are strategically disseminated. And uh, uh, McKinsey, I think you said the original book, Limits to Growth, came out when? It was in, uh, I believe, 1972 or 1973. So in the 70s and now here we are in the 2020s and we are seeing these come to our front door. Walter, is, is this kind of how they infuse these ideologies is using these think tanks and then slowly but surely over time disseminating these concepts out through education and other means? Well, I've been in the education world most of my life, as you know, and the great shift in education in my, in my sphere, came in the year 2000. Something was introduced which was called Curriculum 2000. And the entire emphasis of teaching at universities changed from the old school thinking, which was based on 
free thinking, uh, individual growth capacity, unlimited, uh, sort of the American dream philosophy, down to a more socialistic way of thinking. And in the universities where I operated, there was almost like a coup where the old system in a very, very short time was totally dismantled and replaced with a socialistic type of teaching, which had very heavy Marxist overtones, which then were gradually shifted to a more compromised level so that you have the kind of education that you have in the world today. So there's been a lot of preparation in bringing in these new thoughts and striving for this so-called equity, which uh, cuts off the head and cuts off the tail. Now, this is something that doesn't only happen on the individual level. It also happens on the national level. And this is what wars were all about. You cannot have a nation which outstrips the nations around it. They all have to be on the same level. And if you take the turmoils in Europe, where one nation tries to have the supremacy and you have eventually the great Napoleonic Wars, where one nation tries to impose its will, and then eventually you have the rise of Nazi Germany, where the nation with great economic power has to be curtailed and brought down philosophically to the level of the others. And that morphs eventually into a united Europe where everybody just has a voice. But some have to finance the voice more than others. So that has to be stripped down until there is equity on that level. So it happens on the national level. And now they're introducing it on the individual level. So there will be many, many people that will feel curtailed, that will feel suppressed, and there will be millions upon millions, because that's the bulk of humanity, the poor, that will feel elevated, and just the law of the masses will implement the system because they have the numbers on their side. That's such an interesting concept, because if, if that's the case, then we can kind of look at the things that are being said now, and watch how they roll out in our future in this book 2052. It's basically giving us a roadmap towards less and less of what those who live in what would be considered wealthier nations have become accustomed to, a certain standard of living that is going to be demonized and piece by piece dismantled. And there may be some people who think, well, these are mostly theoretical and very little practical. But there's actually a document called the Vancouver Direct Declaration of Human Settlements that brings this kind of to the forefront and makes it a very practical application rather than just a think tank or a theological, ideological position. Mackenzie, uh, you brought this document in. What What does this va uh, Vancouver Declaration on, on Human Settlements say as it relates to, let's say, something as, as fundamental as, as owning private property? So this Vancouver Declaration... If we go back a little bit to earlier in the conversation, um, we've seen that there was this Agenda 2030, even into the, the previous episode. It originally, and we've seen this in the clip from George Bush Sr., uh, Agenda 21, 
So Agenda 21 was held in Rio, and it was called the Rio Summit. And they brought forth this, um, this paper called Agenda 21. And this was basically um, a climate act and how they would develop that into society, into this new order. So that's what Bush is referencing there when he said this new world order that the United Nations wants to bring in. That got adjusted, more like renamed, into the 2030 agenda. Now, there has to be a local application of all of these different things. And so you're probably wondering, if you're Canadian, um, is this actually something that's coming down the pipeline? So in this Vancouver Declaration, uh, we'll bring up the quote here. Um, It's talking about land and land ownership. So this is under the section uh, D called Land Agenda Item 10. So listen carefully to the wording here. Land, because of its unique nature and the crucial role it plays in human settlements cannot be treated as an ordinary asset. So this is not an ordinary asset, not something that you can just buy and own. Controlled by individuals and subject to the pressures and inefficiencies of the market. Private land ownership is also a principal instrument of accumulation and concentration of wealth and therefore contributes to social injustice if unchecked. It may become a major obstacle in the planning and implementation of development schemes, social justice, urban renewal, and development. The provision of decent dwellings, decent dwellings, remember we need to be satisfied with these decent dwellings, decent dwellings and healthy conditions for the people can only be achieved if land is used in the interest of society as a whole. So they're saying that you can't have ownership individually of land because that is uh, making the problem worse of inequality. So the basis of this whole argument, something we've heard throughout the last two episodes, is that inequality is a issue that needs to be dealt with and right at the core of that inequality is capitalism and democracy uh, the replacement of which we're left with we've got to have some kind of governmental system walter what what system are they going to prefer as they clearly are driving to remove democracy and capitalism as the primary world leading uh, stance on governments This is classic Catholic social justice. This is Fratelli Tutti at its best. This is exactly where they're heading. Now, this thing is not something that has started recently. It has to be universal, right? And because it has to be universal, it must cross borders. Now, many years ago, they started what was called trans-border national parks. That was the first step, breaking down the fences and the barriers between nations and extending the national parks across borders. 
so that more than one country is involved in maintaining that piece of natural environment. Now, the idea that these people have is to actually herd people into new mega cities which become centers of control and to extend these national areas without the impact of human population for the sake of the environment. And this is where the environmental agenda comes in. And the eventual goal of the environmental agenda is not just expansion of natural areas and national parks. It is the disinheriting of those that now occupy that space and to herd them into these cities. Now, don't you find it fascinating that in the world there are mega cities that have been created that are virtually unoccupied? And uh, if you go to China, for example, surely they haven't built these for no reason at all. There must be some agenda. And seeing that these are fully operational, I don't think they want to use them in a millennium or <laughs> a century from now. This is something that is very imminent. And even in the Western world, they've created these cities of control where the rules are uh, applied in a far more stringent way. And if you look in the web pages where these cities are, they're, they're scattered through the country. And they will be like magnets where the people are being drawn to or herded to in order to create this new environment and this happy state where you have your little place to stay, but you no longer have any control and no freedom in terms of your abilities or your goals. And generally, those uh, conditions will come with strings attached. They'll give you your income. They'll give you your dwelling. They'll give you possible employment in a uh, position that they deem suitable for the common good. But what happens when an individual continues in a liberty of conscience, the ability to think for themselves, the ability to choose? What would happen to an individual if we start to kind of forecast Looking down the road a little bit, we see, you know, the elimination of a lot of these private property, uh, civil liberties, individual rights-based thing for replacement of the community. What then happens to the individual that stands out within the community common good structure, would you, would you say? He has to go to a re-education camp, which you could rephrase concentration camp if you want. And uh, we, can, we can talk about these issues and people will say conspiracy, conspiracy. But just have a look at how many of these camps have been erected and not because of COVID-19, as they are claiming. These, these institutions have existed for a long time. There has been a preparation behind the scenes with regard to these things that is unprecedented in human history. And every continent has them. And they also were not constructed just to be uh, <laughs> monuments. They were constructed in order to be used. And already they are talking about these issues in terms of the vaccine 
and people having to be relocated to these institutions or these facilities if they do not play in accordance with the rules that have been set down. Well, there's no better example of that, no conspiracy needed, but to go look back at the last two years and what has happened in mainland China to the Uyghur Muslim populations. These groups of people have been placed in exactly what you've said, Walter, re-education camps. There are people that have been placed with their loved ones. Mainly the men are removed from the household and a state-governed uh, uh, individual will stay with the wife of the man that is gone to ensure that she is properly being re-educated in the meantime while the husband is being put through a forced labor camp. Uh, they have a social credit system that will determine the individual's ability to move within the culture. These are dystopian sounding, but are actually already in effect in one of the world's largest and most populated economies in the world, and some might argue the main emerging world leader uh, in many areas in, in, in terms of global status, including making pacts with other countries outside of the United States with Russia and India and other individual nations to really supplant the, in an attempt to supplant the United States as, as a global power. But I, I think it would be short-sighted possibly for individuals to write these things off as impossible when there are very real examples of these things happening in the world right now. And there will be some who will say, well, that's in China that could never extend to the rest of the world. Let's say the, the first world nations, the UK, the United States, Canada, France, Germany, but I'll say, you guys, what has COVID-19 done but brought many of these tactics that have been used in China? Everything from face masks to restrictions on movements to monitoring of movements and communications and contact tracing. Wouldn't you say these are very similar to what, what China has used and been lauded for in the, in the past? Absolutely. They just need it the right uh, circumstance in order to implement that which, were they, which they were decrying in the past. So everybody is suddenly on the same page, whether you live in the East or whether you're living in the West. This is very orchestrated. This is not chance. You know, it's interesting. You talk about them needing the right circumstance and continually over the last two episodes, we've seen time and time again that these Individuals that run these organizations have seen this public health crisis as a great opportunity, and they're not really that afraid to show that they think this is an opportunity to create drastic and rapid changes to once normal and stable societies. And we talked with China, these elements that could be coming to other parts of the world. We've seen through the, the COVID restrictions that China-style elements have already been implemented into society, things we had never done before. To that end, we've had something here in Canada that takes that re-education aspect, these camps that you were talking about, to another level. Because you're right, Walter, people are going to say that we're you know, going off the track, going off the rails here a little bit. But that's just not the case. Recently, we have seen on Canada's own government websites 
some indication that this is a real issue, that isolation camps related to the public health crisis are going to be a real thing. And I want to play for our listeners and on our viewers a clip from inside of the Canadian government, uh, their parliament structure, where they are debating this very issue on the floor. Uh, let's take a listen. The next question, the member for Lanark Frontenac, Kingston. Thank you, Speaker. Speaker, my question is to the Premier. In my supplemental question yesterday, I asked this government if the people of Ontario should prepare for internment camps. In September, the federal government posted a call for expressions of interest for contractors to supply, provide, and manage quarantine isolation camps throughout every province and every territory in Canada. These quarantine isolation camps, however, are not limited to people with COVID, but provide a wide latitude for many people to be detained. Surely this government is aware of the intentions to build these isolation camps from coast to coast. And my question to the Premier is, how many of these camps will be built? And how many people does this government expect to detain? Question. Government House Leader. Thank you, uh, thank you uh, Mr. Speaker. Uh, it is very true that when people leave the country and when they come back in that the, uh, uh, the province is suggesting and, uh, and the federal government, in cooperation with the federal go government, we are suggesting that people uh, isolate uh, themselves. That has been a, a practice that has been very successful not only here in the province of Ontario but across, uh, uh, across Canada. And we will, of course, be redoubling our efforts to make sure that uh, the people of the province of Ontario uh, remain safe, Mr. S Mr. Speaker. So if the member is referring to the fact that uh, uh, that one of the public health policies is that when you return from a jurisdiction outside of the province of Ontario or from another country that you isolate yourself for, uh, for two weeks. I would suggest uh, uh, that that has been a good, uh, a good policy that has been working. In fact, this House has been doing the same thing since we came back. We are working in cohorts to make sure that the Legislative Assembly can continue to operate. That's why we have two separate cohorts. Uh, Mr. Speaker, response and with the cooperation of the official opposition. That is why all members of the independents have been excluded from that cohort because we want them to be able to participate in debate. So we'll continue to do everything in our power to make sure that this house continues, but that the people of the province of Ontario and Canada are kept safe. Supplementary question. Again, uh, back to the Premier. Here's the RFP, and in the RFP, it uses clear language to express that these camps can be used for a broad spectrum of people, not limited to travellers. Indeed, it doesn't even mention inter international travellers. It's just a broad latitude of people. And I'll send over the copy of the RFP after. So your government is, must be in negotiations, negotiations and aware of these plans to potentially detain and isolate citizens and residents of our country and our province. So, Speaker, to the Premier, where will these camps be built? How many people will be detained? And for what reasons, Questions. for what reasons can people be kept in these isolation camps? And I'd like to, I'd like to have the Premier assure the people of That's it, guys. That's the that's the the back and forth. You have a a concerned member of parliament requesting information, and we want to bring to the forefront here for those who are listening. Make sure to come over to our YouTube page to get a, a link 
and more information on on what this gentleman was talking about. But McKinsey, we actually found this information, and, and what I found strange before we go to these this these pictures to show what this uh, MPP was uh, referring to. You know, he asked this question about why there's this request for information, an RFI or an RFP, request for proposal, on this government website. And you'll notice that there's a complete uh, ignoring of the question. And the person responding to this question goes on some kind of rant about how people coming back from other provinces or outside of the country have to go home to quarantine when clearly the question was why is there this request for outside contractors to build isolation facilities across the country and not only was that question addressed it was completely sidestepped when there was additional information added and additional information requested they simply cut the microphone and there was no reply given so let's go take a look at what you found when you researched this issue so this was very interesting because uh, all you had to do was go to buyandsell.gc.ca. So it's on the government website. Um, and this is about isolation sites. Now, an interesting thing is you can't see this anymore. It's taken down off the website. But luckily we were able to get some screenshots and so we can go over some of the details. So in some of the details here, if we read part of the, right in the middle, it says the government of Canada is considering engaging a third-party service provider for federal quarantine isolation sites that will be used to house and care for people for public health and other related federal requirements associated with the COVID-19 pandemic response. The government is seeking feedback from current service providers about potential options for standing up, operating, and managing all of the services associated with these sites. The purpose of this request for information is to seek feedback from potential service providers in order to develop a strategy for potential future management of these sites going forward. So, uh, it in, in this write-up here, it says that it's not limited to people just for isolating for COVID. It is for anyone or other purposes. So, this is something that's very real. Um, we won't read the whole thing right now, but it's very real in Canada it was on the government website, so it, it can't be denied as conjecture or as uh, uh, something that's just being made up. It is actually something that was on the books. Yeah, and the, the, the language that concerns me, and Walter, I'd love to get your feedback as somebody who's seen a lot of different documents coming from a lot of different places, including inside governments. When we see kind of these broad sweeping measures and, and very broad language. You know, I, I was in contracts for a long time and I notice when I see for public health and other related federal requirements, well, boy, that could include a whole host of things, basically anything that the federal government requires 
for this COVID-19 pandemic response could then be attached to the use of these isolation facilities. Am I looking at this correctly? Re-education. That's what it's about. You either conform to the new reality or (laughs) what they have just reset. So a new reality or you are isolated. They will use incentives. Many people, they have claimed that they will pay their debts if they conform to this uh, new directive. And then they won't own anything, but they, they will be happy. After all, they will be debt-free and they will conform. Now, I find it interesting that they're talking about building these things when in actual fact, a little search of history will tell, tell you that they're all built already. Well, that should be a comforting fact for everyone <laughs> at this stage in the game where literally on a weekly basis, life seems to be changing and for most not for the better. But this takes us to the end of our episode here. We are hopeful that you, the listener, the viewer, have had a chance to learn something as it relates to the Great Reset, have a chance to understand who's behind it and why, to see the spiritual component that is very real operating behind the scenes and infused into these organizations and understanding the social mechanisms that are going into what's happening and why with this great reset as well as what could be coming to our front doors very soon. Now, as always, we do this to inform and to educate, not to incite any fear or panic. In fact, Soon we'll be looking at some of the things that you and your family can do to prepare and to have hope for something better coming in the future. Walter, McKenzie, we appreciate your deep dive into these very important topics. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Make sure you join us. Soon we're going to be looking at the next phase of this plan, which includes something called the economy of Francesco and other things around these issues. So thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. 